Thursday, April 30th, 2020. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Folk Runyon, and tonight we present a discussion and a review of the 1934 to 1954 science fiction Lensman series by Edward Elmer Smith, Ph.D., otherwise known as Doc Smith, a scientist in the food industry specializing in pastry whose major accomplishment in food engineering was making powdered sugar adhere to donuts and whose major accomplishment in science fiction writing was the creation of a subgenre called space opera. His Lensman series and its concepts and themes influenced Frank Herbert's Dune, Roddenberry's Star Trek, and Lucas's Star Wars. It even re it even re-influenced the screen version of one of Smith's inspirations, the nineteen twelve Burroughs John Carter. When Burroughs Therns were rewritten by Andrew Stanton as as Smith's evil Adorians, and their medallions were given the powers of an Arisian lens. Smith developed the concept of the multiverse. A merciless, faster-than-light drive, laser and particle weapons, and supercomputers years before they appeared. His concept of the lensman as an incorruptible galactic police force guided by secret masters from a hidden planet, seems to have been inspired by Theosophy's ascended masters from Tibet and King Arthur's Knights at the Round Table and the Holy Grail. The Lensmen are obviously the origin of the Star Wars Jedi. In the final book of the series, Children of the Lens, the Arisian Selective Breeding Program finally uniting the bloodlines of the Lensmen to produce not one, but a family of mental superhumans, which is obviously where Herbert got his 1965 Benai Gesserit genetic manipulations in the Dune series. Now, another imitator of Doc Smith was Isaac Asimov with his Foundation series. But as a Marxist humanist, Asimov, could not leave Smith to define future galactic civilization in a Christian good versus evil historical conception. He decided to use the galactic civilization Smith had created as a gigantic statistical population for his secret master, Harry Seldon, and his amoral foundation, think tanks, to analyze and manipulate history. Asimov was so successful with his Foundation series that he beat out Doc Smith for the 1966 Hugo Award for the best all-time science fiction series. But at least they declared that Doc's epic was the runner-up. So, if you'd like to look deeper into this and even uh, review what happened when Doc ran one of his lensmen for president, and how Clarissa McDougall became the first lens woman, tune in and we'll activate the lens. Now, because so much of the Lensman series has been reworked and reformatted from earlier magazine publications, it's difficult for a contemporary reviewer to make any firm statement about when Doc Smith conceived his idea of the secret masters, the Arisians, versus the master villains, the Adorians, and their long-lasting battle to control the minds of the intelligent beings of our galaxy. But the first book publication of Triplanetary, that was the first book in the series, was in 1948. And we will date the cosmic great game between the forces of good and the forces of evil from that date. Hermetic students may observe Zoroastrian dualism here. And Star Wars fans may recognize two sides of the force. But let's let Doc Smith tell us how it came came to be. This is the first chapter. 2,000 million or so years ago, two galaxies were colliding, or rather were passing through each other. A couple of hundreds of millions of years, either way, do, do not matter, since at least that much time was required for the interpassage. At about the same time, 
within the same plus or minus 10% margin of error, it is believed practically all of the suns of both these galaxies became possessed of planets. There is much evidence to support the belief that it was not merely a coincidence that so many planets came into being at about the same time as the galactic interpassage. Another school of thought holds that it was pure coincidence that all suns have planets as naturally as, as inevitably as cats have kittens. Now, be that as it may, Arisian records are clear upon the point that before the two galaxies began to coalesce, there were never more than three solar systems present in either and usually only one. Thus, when the sun of, of the planet upon which their race originated grew old and cool, the Erisians were hard put to it to preserve their culture. And since they had to work against time in solving the engineering problems associated with moving a planet from an order from an older to a younger son. I think Shaver got some ideas out of this, too. Since nothing material was destroyed when the Adorians were first forced into the next plane of existence, their historical records also have become available. Those records, folios and tapes, and playable discs of platinum alloy, resistant indefinitely even to Ador's noxious atmosphere agreed with those of the Arisians up to this point. Immediately before the coalescence began, there was one and only one planetary solar system in the second galaxy. And until the advent of the door, the second galaxy was entirely devoid of intelligent life. Thus, for millions upon untold millions of years, the two races, each the sole intelligent life of a galaxy, perhaps an entire space-time continuum, remained completely in, in ignorance of each other. Both were already ancient at the time of the coalescence. The only other respect in which the two were similar, however, was in the possession of minds of power. Since Arisia was Earth-like in composition, atmosphere, and climate, the Arisians were at that time distinctly humanoid. The Adorians were not. Ador was and is large and dense. Its liquid is poisonous, sludgy syrup, its atmosphere of foul, corrosive fog. Ador was and is unique from any other world of either galaxy that its very existence was inexplicable until its own records revealed the fact that it did not originate in normal space-time at all but came to our universe from some alien and horribly different other. As different as differed the planets, so differed the peoples. The Arisians went through the usual stages of savagery and barbarism on the way to civilization, the age of stone, the age of bronze, of iron, of steel, and electricity, and indeed it is probable that it, it, that it is because the Arisians went through these various stages that all subsequent civilizations have done so. And since the spores, which burgeoned into life upon the cooling surfaces of all the planets of the coming, uh, the commingling galaxies, were Arisian, not Adorian in origin, Adorian spores, while undoubtedly present, must have been so alien that they could not develop in any one of the environments. Widely variant, although they, they are, existing naturally or, or coming naturally into being in normal space and time. The Arisians, especially under after atomic energy freed them from physical labor, devoted themselves more and more intensively to the exploration of the limitless possibilities of the mind. Even before the coalescence, then, the Arisians had need neither of spaceships nor of telescopes. By the power of the mind alone, they watched the lenticular aggregation of stars, which was much later to be known to Tellurian astronomers as Ludmark's nebula 
approach their own galaxy. They observed attentively and minutely and with high elation the occurrence of mathematical impossibility for the chance of two galaxies ever meeting in direct central equatorial plane impact and of passing completely through each other as an infinitesimal of such a high order as to be even mathematically practically indistinguishable from zero. They observed the birth of of numberless planets, recording minutely in their perfect memories every detail of everything that happened, in the hope that, as ages passed, either they or their descendants would be able to develop a symbology and a methodology capable of explaining then inexplicable phenomenon. Carefree, busy, absolutely intent, the Erysian mentalities roamed throughout space until one of them struck an Adorian mind. While any Adorian could, if it chose, assume the form of a man, they were in no sense manlike. Nor, since the term implies a softness and a lack of organization, can they be described as being amoeboid. They were both versatile and variant. Each Adorian changed not only its shape, but also its texture in accordance with the requirements of the moment. Each produced extruded members whenever and wherever it needed them, members uniquely appropriate to the task uh, than at work. If hardness was indicated, the members were hard. If softness, they were soft. Small or large, rigid or flexible, joined, jointed or, or, or tentacular, all one. Filaments or cables, fingers or feet, needles or malls, equally simple. One thought and the body fitted the job. They were asexual, sexless to a degree, unapproached by any form of Tellurian life higher than the yeasts. They were not merely hermaphroditic nor androgynous, but parthenogenic. They were completely without sex. They were also, to all intents and purposes, and except for death by violence, immortal. For each Adorian, as its mind approached the stagnation of saturation after a lifetime of millions of years, simply divided into two new old beings. New in capacity and in zest, old in ability and in power, and since each of the two children possessed in toto the knowledge and memories of their one parent. And if it is difficult to describe in words the physical aspects of the Adorians. It is virtually impossible to write or draw in any symbology of civilization a true picture of an Adorian's, any Adorian's mind. They were intolerant, domineering, rapacious, insatiable, cold, callous, and brutal. They were keen, capable, preserving, analytical, and efficient. They had no trace of any of the softer emotions or sensibilities possessed by races adherent to civilization. No Adorian ever had anything even remotely resembling a sense of humor. While not essentially bloodthirsty, that is, not loving bloodshed for its own sweet sake, they were no more averse to bloodletting than they were in favor of it. Any amount of killing which would or which might advance an Edorian toward his goal was commendable. Useless slaughter was frowned upon, not because it was slaughter, but because it was useless, and hence inefficient. And instead of the multiplicity of goals sought by various entities of any race of civilization, each and every Edorian had only one agenda, the same one, power, power, and power. Since Ador was peopled originally by various races, perhaps as similar to each other as are the various human races on Earth. It is understandable that the early history of the planet, while it was still in its own space, that is, was one of continuous and age-long war. 
And since war always was and probably always will be linked solidly to technological advancement, the race now known simply as the Adorians became technologists supreme. All other races disappeared, so did all other forms of life, however slowly, which interfered in any way with the masters of the planet. Then all racial opposition liquidated, and overmastering lust, as unquenched as ever, the surviving Adorians fought among themselves, push-button wars employing engines of destruction, against which the only possible defense was a fantastic thickness of planetary bedrock. And finally, unable either to kill or to enslave each other, the comparatively few survivors made a peace of sorts. And since their own space was practically barren of planetary systems, they would move their planet from space to space until they found one which so teemed with planets that each living Adorian could become the sole master of an ever-increasing number of worlds. This was a program very much worthwhile, promising as it did an outlet for even the recognizable, insatiable Adorian craving for power. Therefore, the Adorians, with the first time in their, for the first time in their prodigiously long history of fanatical non-cooperation, decided to pool their resources of mind and of material and to work as a group in union of a sort, and what it was accomplished. Eventually, uh, neither peaceably nor without a lethal, uh, lethal fiction, friction, they knew that uh, they they knew that a democracy, by its very nature, was was inefficient, and hence a democratic form of government was not even considered. Any efficient government must, of necessity, be dictatorial. Nor were they all exactly alike or exactly of equal ability, and perfect identity of any two such complex structures was in fact impossible, and any difference, however slight, was ample justification for stratification in such a society as theirs. Thus, one of them, factionally powerful and more ruthless than the rest, became the all-highest in his ultimate supremacy. And a group of about a dozen others, all only infinitesimally weaker, became his council, a cabinet which was later to be known as the innermost circle. The tally of this cabinet varied somewhat from age to age, increasing by one when a, mem- when a, when a member divided, decreasing by one when a jealous fellow or an envious underling managed to perpetuate a successful assassination. And thus, at long last, the Adorians began to really work together. There resulted, among other things, the hyperspatial tube and the fully inertialist drive, the drive which was, millions of years later, to be given to civilization by an Arisian operating under the name of Bergenholm. Another result, which occurred shortly after the galactic interpassage had begun, was the eruption into normal space of the of, of the planet Endor. Now, that gives us a pretty good a pretty good picture of the of the uh, Endorians, or a pretty bad picture of the bad Endorians, and and. Uh, you can see compared to the Arisians, who who are the, uh, you know, they they were humanoid. So this is kind of like you know God created man in His own image in a sense, and 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 and, and the uh, the Adorians are certainly certainly are devilish. And so and we what we have here, you know, is is really Zoroastrian, uh, you know, Ahura Mazda versus uh, versus uh, Riemann. <laughs> and if you want to put a religious uh, uh, mythological cast to, cast to it. Uh, anyway, now that the that the interstellar travel uh, was uh, finally uh, available to Earth, Virgil Sims and Rod Kinnison, you know, who were who were the uh, part of this uh, uh, genetic 
manipulation that uh, that the Arisians started a long, long ago. They want to upgrade their triplanetary service. They were the head of a of a, of a uh, solar system uh, space force, space police force, uh, and um, Smith. And remember now, these 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 uh, stories were originally written kind of kind of in the 1930s. They were the 1930s to 40s, and at that time, all science fiction writers considered that uh, that Mars and Venus were inhabited. And and uh, if you remember, uh, you remember Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon? They they the comics in those days they they reflected that idea. Uh, of course, now we know that that they're pretty much not inhabited, but but uh, well, we're not exactly sure of that. But we don't. <laughs> but in those days, uh, Smith uh, considered that they that they did have uh, beings. However, uh, by the time that this, the the Lensman series starts. Uh, we, the, 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 the human the humans from Earth had uh, had already colonized Mars, Venus, and Jupiter, and um, but out on Pluto there were some aliens from another solar system that had colonized Pluto. Uh, so um, they had uh, they they uh, the 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 incipient lensmen, the one the, the guys the, the families that were going to become lensmen, that's the that's the Sam's family and the Kinnison family, they they already had had created a uh triplanetary police force, which they now at the point where they had the Bergholm drive, they had, you know, they, they, they had uh, the inertialist they had inertialist drive, you know, warp factor three, Mr. Scott. Uh they had a more, uh, you know, they they had uh, inertialist drive, and so so they were starting to explore other solar systems. And at this point, uh, at this point, Sims and Kinnison thought, well, we've got to upgrade the the triplanetary service, and and we're gonna we're, we're gonna upgrade it. We're gonna call it the Galactic Patrol. But they knew that they had had to have a special device, an insignia. That would link all of their agents and officers together. One of the one of the scientists uh, working for Triplanetary, who who was a who was a, a mental link to the Arisians. This was Bergholm, by the way, the same guy that developed the drive. And he insisted that Virgil Sams had to go to the planet Arisia. They wouldn't explain why, he just, uh, but, you know, he'd already developed an uh, inertialist drive, so they listened to him, you know, because the guy was a genius, and and and, uh, and uh, so they listened to him, and he said, you just have to go to, you you, you have to go to Arisia, and and, uh, and Arisia, by the way, was uh, uh, the planet, of course, of the Arisians, and it was forbidden. Nobody could get near it. They had the Arisians had sort of such mental power that you couldn't get a, you couldn't get a spaceship near that planet, the planet of the masters. You you, you just couldn't. But Merkholm um, told uh, uh, you know told Sims. He said, Virgil, you've got to go there. You just have to. So Virgil went to Arisia to receive the first lens. Now this is a device that will give him and other lensmen, galactic patrol officers, the power of telepathy, mind reading, psychokinesis, and other powers not even not yet re- revealed. Now, Sams asks the Arisian composite being, who calls himself Mentor, the Arisians were going to get out of the deal because, because the Arisians were going to make the lenses and they were going to give them to, uh, to to Sam to Virgil Sams and Kinnison and, and their and their and their officers, they were but they but, but the Arisians were going to, going to create the lenses, and each one of these officers had to be sent to the planet to be initiated by uh, by Mentor. Mentor was a a composite a unit of, of several several minds together to form a composite personality. Now. Uh, so, so you know, Virgil asks Mentor. He says, "Well, this this lens is wonderful. If this is this is this is what we need. This is wonderful. Uh, what do you what do you get out of it? What uh, you know?" And and so um, Mentor replies to it. 
by no means. A lens cannot be brought into being except to match someone's living personality. A short time after you pass into the next cycle, your lens will disintegrate. Well, that's wonderful, Sims breathed. But there is one thing. These things are priceless, and there will be millions of them to make, and you don't. Well, what will you get out of it? The Erisian seemed to smile. Exactly, uh, Sam blushed, and he held his ground. Nobody does it does something for nothing. Altruism is beautiful in theory, but it has never been known to work in practice. I will pay a tremendous price, any price within reason or possibility, for the lens. But I will have to know what the price is to be. And it will be heavier than you think, or can at present realize, although not in the sense that you fear, Mentor's thought was solemnly itself, solemnity itself. Whoever wears the lens of Arisia will carry a load no weaker mind could bear, the load of authority, of responsibility, of knowledge, that would wreck completely any mind of lesser strength. Altruism? No. Nor is it a case of good against evil, as you so firmly believe. Your mental picture of glaring white and of unrelieved black is not a true picture. Neither absolute evil nor absolute good do or can exist. But that would make it still worse, Sam protested. In that case, I can't see any reason at all for your exerting yourselves, putting yourselves out for us. There is, however, reason enough although I am not sure that I can make it clear to you as I would wish. There are, in fact, three reasons, any one of which would justify us in exerting. It would compound us to, to, to exert, and the trivial effort involved in the furnishing of the lenses to your galactic patrol. First, there is nothing either intrinsically right or intrinsically wrong about liberty or slavery, democracy or autocracy, freedom of action or complete regimentation. It seems to us, however, that the greatest measure of happiness and of well-being for the greatest number of entities and therefore the optimum advancement toward whatever sublime goal it is toward which the cycle of existence is trending in the vast and unknowable scheme of things to be obtained by securing for each and every individual the greatest amount of mental and physical freedom compatible with the public welfare. We of Arisia are only a small part of this cycle, and as goes the whole, so goes the greater or lesser degree each of the parts. Is it impossible for you, a fellow citizen of this cycle universe, to believe that such fulfillment alone would be ample compensation for a much greater effort? Well, I never thought of it in that light. It's hard for, for Sam to grasp the concept. He never did understand thoroughly. I begin to see, I think, I, I think at least at least I can believe you. Well, second, we have to be more, we have a more specific obligation in that the life of many, many worlds has sprung from a Rizian seed. Thus, in local parentis, we would be derelict indeed if we refused to act. And third, you yourself spend highly valuable time and much effort in playing chess. Here comes the real reason, by the way. Why do you do it? Do you get out of it? Why, I, it's a mental exercise, I suppose. I like it. Just so. And I am sure that one of your very early philosophers came to the conclusion that a fully competent mind from a study of one fact or artifact belonging to any given universe could construct or visualize that universe from the instant of its creation to its ultimate end. Now, when we read that, we are reminded 
of what I think inspired Smith to write that whole passage. It's a line from Omar. Let's see if I can remember it. Tis all a checkerboard of nights and days which destiny with man for pieces plays. Hither and thither move and checks and mates and slays and one by one back in the closet lays. I think that that I think that line from Omar inspired Doc Smith when he when he wrote the uh, that little passage uh, that Mentor was giving about the uh, Arisian agenda, because the Arisians are playing they're playing a game, a, a giant chess game with the Adorians, and and uh, and the Galactic Patrol is uh, the lensmen of the Galactic Patrol are are some of the some of the Arisian chess pieces. And of course, later in the in the series, when the Adorians figure this out, that they create their own black lensmen, and then they have, uh, which of course, you know, they <laughs> is the inspiration, uh, the inspiration for Darth Vader and Darth Maul and all the Sith, you know, in Star Wars. They're the uh, they're the they're the black lensmen, and of course the uh, the lensmen, the the Arisian lensmen are the Jedi, obviously, and and mentors. Is kind of like Yoda, you know. Anyway, uh, so that's that's the uh, that's the uh, the the Adorian agenda. Uh, let me see where we're at here. Of course, the the totally truthful altruistic Arisians are lying, and as the chess reference reveals, and Smith should have, you know, and as I said, he should have quoted the following lines from Omar, which we did. The Arisians are playing chess with the Adorians, and human beings, the lensmen, are the chess pieces. Meanwhile, the Sams and the Kinnisons and other bloodlines the Arisians have secretly cultured and nurtured have come together on Earth, tell us, in an attempt to create an effective interplanetary police force. And since the colonization of the solar systems uh, occurred, piracy and drug trafficking have become rampant, and commerce and public health and safety are threatened. And at this point, the future lensmen do not realize that Gray Roger, the space pirate, is actually an Adorian named Garlane who is a high-ranking official in the Adorian Ground Council. Now, Gray Roger has an artificial planetoid very much like the Death Star. Well, after they defeat, let me interject here something about, uh, about Doc Smith is famous for his space battles. I, they, they just, you know, his space battles are, are, are absolutely epic. And, and he, uh, he uses these tremendous energy weapons, tractor beams, uh, um, shields, all of the, all of the techniques, uh, you know, photon torpedoes, all, all, the, all of the space weapons that you encounter in Star Trek and Star Wars and, and these, other, these others, other space operas were all probably originally in one form or another developed by Doc Smith. And his, he, he, he used these thousands of spaceships in formation and his favorite formation was the cone and what this was was a was a literally a cone formed of thousands of spaceships and and they would use this cone very much like we 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 used to use uh, uh, the cone called an ogive in special demolitions and and uh, what you do with it in, in that is you have a cone, and let's say you 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 cover the cone uh, with a plastic explosive, and then you set it off, and it focuses. The cone focuses a jet of of fire, and a tremendous high high velocity jet of energy out of the cone, and that will cut cut through just about anything. And uh, this is a special demolition technique, which which I think uh, Smith was aware of, and he created this cone formation, so the whole cone of, of spaceships could focus all their energy into one beam, and then the cone could turn around and 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 aim 
And then finally, in order to counter the cone, they developed the cylinder. They would enclose they would enclose the cone in a in a cylinder of spaceships. And and uh, and you know, Smith would blow up planets and 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 and, uh, and, and just just uh, have these these horrendous space battles. Uh, and he was famous. He was famous for his space battles. They um, let's see. So Gray, so Gray Roger had this this planetoid which was which was uh, the, probably the original uh, inspiration for the Death Star. And after this defeating Gray Roger, Sams and Kinnison set out to recruit lensmen from all the intelligent races in the galaxy. Because this uh, this effort, before this this effort, they tried to gain political power in North America which in their time included the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. That was North America. And, uh, of course, Virgil Sims is the first linesman, and he is, you know, he's the, he is, is, he's the, the big shot behind the, you know, behind the whole, the whole Galactic Patrol. But his uh, right-hand man, uh, Admiral Roderick Kinnison, is the second linesman. And Roderick Kim Kinnison is a savage space admiral who was kind of reminiscent of World War II's Bull Halsey. And they decide, Sims decides to run uh, to run Rod for president. You know, rather than himself, he's going to run Rod for president. And of course, he'll be the power behind the behind the the the, the desk. And and, uh, and uh, like today's partisan tire. The president in this campaign is very much like, uh, like a, you know, as I say, he's based. I, I think he, the character is based on Bull Halsey, and you can imagine, you can imagine what Bull Halsey would have been like running for president, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, so he, they they run this campaign against Senator Morgan. Who is and, and Morgan? Interestingly enough, the name Morgan, of course, is both the banker Morgan and the pirate Morgan. And and Morgan is um, Morgan, of course, is hooked up, is corrupt, and he's hooked up with the space pirates, and 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 the drug and the drug uh, uh, the drug uh, people. Now, uh, I I think uh, I'm going to find the if I can find it. I'm going to find the. The protocols of the uh, the Andorians, as far as uh, as far as uh, piracy and and um, and, uh, and drug trafficking are concerned. Wait, hang on. This is the uh, this is the the uh, the Andorian agenda. The All Highest then called a meeting of the minds of Andor. Hence, it is clear that these Arisians, while possessing minds of tremendous latent capability, are basically soft and therefore inefficient, he concluded. Not weak-minded, mind you, but scrupulous and unrealistic. And it is by taking advantage of these characteristics that we shall ultimately triumph. A few details, all highest, if your ultimate supremacy would, would deny, unless a Redorian requested. Some of us have not been able to perceive at all clearly the optimum lines of action. While detailing plans of the campaign have not yet been worked out, there will be several main lines of attack. A purely military undertaking will, of course, be one, but it will not be the most important political action by means of subversive elements and obstructive minorities will prove much more useful. Most productive of all, however, will be the operations of relatively small but highly organized groups whose functions will be to negate, to tear down, and destroy every bulwark of what the weak and spineless adherents of civilization consider the finest things in life. Love, truth, honor, loyalty, purity, altruism, decency, and so on. Ah, love. Extremely interesting. Supremacy. This thing they call sex, Darlene offered. What a silly and meaningless thing it is. I have studied it intensively, but I am not fully enough informed to submit a complete conclusive report. I do know, however, that we can use it 
and we can use it in our hands, vice will become a potent weapon indeed. Vice, drugs, greed, gambling, extortion, blackmail, lust, abduction, assassination. Ah. You know, <laughs> I have to say, you know, this sounds an awful lot like the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, but, uh, but however, that, that defines what, uh, what uh, Morgan and the politicians of a nationalist party, I mean, as you were, yeah, the nationalist party of North America, they are, they are actually controlled by the Adorians. Now, now Rod Tennyson runs against them, and <laughs> he runs against them, and yet they they turn they turn everything everything upside down and uh, and attack him for the very principles that uh, that they that they are secretly upholding. Now, this is Senator. This is one of Senator Morgan's speeches against Rod Kinnison. It's not exactly hypnotism, but something infinitely worse, something that steals away your very minds, that makes anyone listening believe that white is yellow, red, purple, or pea green, until our scientists have checked this menace, until we have everywhere of that cursed lens behind steel bars, I advise you in all earnestness not to listen to them at all. If you do listen, your minds will surely be insidiously decomposed and broken. You will surely end your days gibbering in a padded cell. And murderers, murderers, the feeble remnants of the gangs which our government has all but wiped out may perhaps commit a murder or so per year, the predators of which are caught, tried, and punished, but how many of your sons and daughters has Roderick Kennison murdered, either personally or through his uniformed slaves? Think. Read the record. Then make him explain, if he can. But do not listen to his lying, mind-destroying lens. Democracy, bah. What does Rod the Rock Kennison, the hardest, most vicious tyrant, the most relentless and pitiless marionette ever known to any armed forces in the long history of our world. No of democracy, nothing. He understands only force, and all who oppose him in anything, however small, or who seek to reason with him, die without record or trace. And if he is not arrested, tried, and executed, all such will continue tracelessly and without any pretense of trial to die. But at the bottom, even though he is not intelligent enough to realize it, he is merely one more of a long parade of tools of the ruthless, predatory wealth, the moneyed powers. They, my friends, never sleep. They have only one God and one tenet, one creed, the almighty credit. That is all thereafter. Note how craftily, how stealthily, they have done and are going going on with their grabbing. Where is your representation upon the so-called Galactic Council? How did this criminal, this vicious and outrageously unconstitutional, irresponsible, uncontrollable, and dictatorial monstrosity come into being? How and when did you get this bloated colossus the right to establish its own currency, to have the immeasurable affrontery to debar the a solidest currency in the universe, the credit of North America, and the interplanetary and interstellar commerce. And their aim is clear. They intend to tax you into slavery and death. Do not forget for one instant, my friend, that the power to tax is the power to destroy. Our forefathers fought and bled to establish that principle of taxation without representation, and so on and so on. And uh, now, so, that was what, um, that was what Kennison ended up with um, when he when he when he tried to run for president of North America, and uh, well, after defeating Gray Rogers, Sam C. Kennison set out to re, to recruit linesmen from all the intelligent races of the galaxy, and uh, of course Kennison wins wins, but the first linesman, Virgil Sams, with the with, with the Arisian mentor uh, behind him is still running the show. Now, let me... Page 452. 
Smith's imagination conjures, conjures up most of the aliens that you've seen in Star Trek and Star Wars. There are amphibians and monstrous creatures of all shapes and sizes, but the lens permitted communication between races and species. Thus, the Galactic Patrol was not only a police force, it also served to unite all the civilized beings in the galaxy, which was the original Rizian intention. It must be noted that Smith did not postulate human expansion throughout the galaxy, which was the assumption in Isaac Asimov's Foundation series and Frank Herbert's Dune. Although both Asimov and Herbert owe much to Smith in uh, Asimov's, uh, Asimov's Foundation, Herbert's Dune owe much to Smith. In the Foundation series, Harry Seldon's psychohistory database would have to depend on human populations for predictable results. And yet Asimov's secret sex second foundation did intervene, and Frank Herbert's Benny Jesserat witches did have a breeding program similar to, the, to that of Smith's Arisians with similar results. It should also be noted that the Arisians, if not actually human, were certainly humanoid and are thought to be the original root race from which the humans arose. Was Smith influenced by Blavatsky? In any case, the Arisians eventually conclude that humans are the master race of the galaxy, and they discontinue their selective breeding programs among non-human races, leaving their chosen people, Polensmen, to rule and police the Galactic Empire. When Smith first introduced the Lensman program in the early 1950s, mentor the Arisian multiple personality would only bestow the lenses on male candidates. He, or they, we actually have to refer to mentor as they, and certainly Doc Smith himself bought into the men do and women are philosophy. Lensmen had to be doers. So there were no lenses for the girls. But then the lensmen ran across a planet with human civilization dominated by women, and they needed to induct the planet into the Galactic Council. And however, the leaders of the matriarchy, matriarchy refused to negotiate with a male lensman. The Galactic Patrol decided to send its best female candidate to Arisia for initiation. But she having been previously insulted by Mentor, refused to go. Mentor, finally realizing that human women could also be doers, relented and sent her lens to Earth, allowing the patrol to initiate its first lady lensman. Because this was written in the 1950s, we and Doc Smith are spared the language mangling gender of gender politics or calling her a lens person or a lens woman, but <laughs> we are reminded of Jesus declaring Mary Magdalene an honorary man. However, by the end of the series, in the book titled Children of the Lens, the bloodlines of the Lensman family have finally produced a generation of mental supermen and superwomen, or superhumans, who finally defeat the evil Edorians and their pirate and criminal anti-civilization rogue states and their own black lensmen, the Star Wars, Sith, Darth Vader, and Maul. The evolved lensmen do this not with the vast and powerful space fleets of the Galactic Patrol, but with their combined mental powers. Like Mentor, the Arisian teacher, the children of the lens merge their minds to become a single entity called the unit, which finally defeats the Adorians. Let us follow one of these evolved female lensmen as she visits Mentor for instruction. This is chapter 9 showed an Arisian education. Her adventure in the hyperspatial tube had taught Catherine Kennison much. 
Realizing her inadequacy and knowing what to do about it, she drove her speedster at high velocity to Arisia. Unlike the second-stage lensman, she did not even slow down as she approached the planet's barrier. But as one sure of her welcome merely threw out ahead of her an identifying thought, Ah, daughter Catherine, again you are on time. Was there or was there not a trace of emotion or of welcome, even of affection, in that usually utterly emotionless thought? Well, and as usual, she neutralized her controls as she felt the mighty beams of the landing engine take hold of her little ship. And during nervous visits, she had questioned nothing. This time, she was questioning everything. Was she landing or not? Directing her every force inwardly, she probed her own mind to its profoundest depths. Definitely, she was her own mistress throughout. No conceivable mind could take hers so tracelessly and definitely then she was actually landing. She landed. The ground upon which she stepped was real. So was the automatic flyer, neither plane nor helicopter, which whisked her from the spaceport to the familiar destination, the unpretentious residence in the grounds of the immense hospital. The graveled walk, the flowering shrubs, the indescribably sweet and pungent perfume were real. As were the tiny pain and a drop of blood which resulted when a needle sharp thorn pierced her incautious finger. Through the automatically opening door, she made her way to the familiar, comfortable book lined room, which was Mentor's study. And there, in his, at his big desk, unchanged, sat Mentor. A lot like her father, but he didn't look over 60. This time, however, she drove a probe and got the shock of her life. Her thought was stopped cold by superior mental force, which she could have taken unmoved, but by a seemingly ordinary thought screen and her fast disintegrating morale began visibly to crack. Is all this, are you real or not, she burst out finally. If it isn't, I'll go mad. Well, that which you have tested and I are real. And for the moment, you understand reality. Your mind, in its present state of advancement, cannot be deceived concerning such elementary manners. But it, it all wasn't before, or don't you want to answer that? Since the knowledge will affect your growth, I will answer it was not. This is the first time that your speedster has landed physically upon Arisio. Hmm. The girl shrank appalled. You told me to come back when I found out that that I didn't know it all. And she finally forced herself to say, I learned that in the tube. But I didn't realize until just now that I don't know anything. Is there any use, mentor, in going on with me, she concluded bitterly. Much, he assured her. Your development has been eminently satisfactory, and your present mental condition is both necessary and sufficient. What are you doing to me? What were you doing to me before then? I thought I got everything. Power of mind, he informed her. Sheer power and penetration and control, depth and speed, and all the other factors of which you are already familiar. But what's left? I know there is, but there's lots of it, but I can't imagine what. Scope, Mentor replied bravely. Each of those qualities and characteristics must be explained to encompass the full sphere of thought. Neither words nor thoughts can give you adequate concept of what it means. A practically wide-open two-way will be necessary. This cannot be accomplished, daughter, in the adolescent confines of your present mind. Therefore, enter fully into mine. She did so, and after less than a minute of that awful contact, she slumped inert and boneless to the floor. The Arisian, unchanged, unmoved, unmoving, gazed at her until finally she began to stir. That, Father Mentor, that was, she blinked, shook her head savagely, fought her way back to full consciousness. That was a shock. Well, it was, he agreed, more so than you realize. 
of all the entities of your civilization, your brother and now you are the only ones it would not kill instantly. You now know what the word scope means and are ready for your last treatment, in the course of which I shall take your mind as far along the road of knowledge as mine is capable of going. But that that would mean you're implying that my mind can't be superior to yours, mentor. Nothing could possibly, could possibly, surely, starkly unthinkable. But true, daughter, nevertheless, while you are recovering your strength from that which has been but the beginning of your education, I will explain certain matters previously obscure that you have known, of course, that you, that you and the five children are not like any others. You have always known many things without having learned them. You think upon all possible bands of thought. Your senses of perception of sight, of hearing, of touch are so perfectly merged into one sense that you perceive at will any possible manifestation upon any possible plane or dimension of vibration. Also, although this may not have occurred to you as extraordinary since it is not obvious, you differ physically from your fellows in some important respects. You have never experienced the slightest symptom of physical illness, not even a headache or a decayed tooth. You do not really require sleep. Vaccinations and inoculations do not take. No pathological organism, however virulent, no poison, however potent. Stop, mentor, Catherine gasped, turning white. I can't take it. You really mean, then, that, that we aren't humans at all. Before going into that, I should give you something of the background of our Arisian visualizations. Foretold the arise to rise and fall of galactic civilizations. Long before any of such civilizations came into being, that of Atlantis, for instance, I was personally concerned in that and could not stop its fall. Mentor was showing emotion now. His thought was bleak and bitter. And that gives us an idea of how of how the uh, the lensman and the lens and the lenswoman evolved, and and what happened after that was that the Arisians the Arisians turned over the be turned over our galaxy to uh, uh, to the lens the lensman, and they they uh, they had they had bred this this generation. And they were going to be the 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 rulers of the galaxy. And after this, the Arusians decamped. They left our dimension, and they went into it. They went to a galaxy in another dimension. And uh, one, you know, you can kind of assume if you want to that they may have started all over again by doing that. But but uh, that that this is this is the way it ends. That uh, the children of the lens become uh, take over take over the uh, they then become the mentors. Now. Of course, the final generation of lensmen are perfected human beings. They are more than human. The sort of elite our futurists are predicting we, or a select number of us, will someday become. In, in our futurist scenario, these new elite will be genetically modified and technologically enhanced. Our own futurists are predicting a new species that they have dubbed Homo technicus, Genetically engineered human beings with help and intelligence empowered by nanotech and electronic implants. We may well ask, was their futurist vision of this new and evolved human elite inspired by Doc Smith's lensman? And I kind of think it was because uh, if you if you go back and read uh, Dan Brown's Origin, that's a that's a novel. Uh, which is primarily concerned with the futurists' agenda, and you'll see so many, so many things that 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 resonate from the from the Lensman series in in uh, in our futurists. And of course, uh, as I said in the beginning of the of the show, um, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series was was his own. I think was his own 
answer to Doc Smith's Lundsman. I think I, I think that that uh, that Asimov was not satisfied with uh, this um, with this uh, conservative political. Now, now Doc Smith was not a Republican, as far as I know. He was probably a he was probably a, 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 a New Deal Democrat, uh, but uh, uh, the uh, but nonetheless. He was very definitely a patriotic American, and you can see a lot of, even though even though he he concedes that uh, that uh, that America expands to become North America and this, but it's still it's still American, and there's still a lot of patriotism involved in and in, in, involved in Smith's work. So, um, but Asimov Asimov was was a Marxist, and and uh, and Asimov. Um, his foundation series, which, by the way, we did a show on. Uh, I don't remember what folio it's in in the archives. But, however, Asimov's, Asimov's foundation series spawned present, future, future, futuristic cult called Cleo Dynamics. Cleo was, was, the, was the mythological muse of, of history. Interestingly enough, she was Cleo was also one of one of Doc Smith's lady characters, and she she never got a lens that I remember, but but she was one of she was a girlfriend of one of the lensmen, and and then eventually the wife of one of the lensmen, Cleo. But anyway, Asimov's Foundation series spawned the discipline of Cleo Dynamics, futurist discipline. This and the way that way this works, and the way Asimov's Foundation worked. As I explained, is is the uh, the, the psychohistorian Harry Seldon, who was a mathematician. He used a human galactic empire, which which Asimov imagined was was you know was colonized by humans all through the galaxy, similar to Herbert Spoon, uh, and that gave gave Harry Seldon, the psychohistorian. A huge statistical base of billions and billions and billions of people on millions of planets uh, to to statistically predict history. Now, some people say that Asimov wrote this uh, to to dispute the great man theory in history uh, and and to to, uh, to promote Toynbee's uh, uh, cyclic history. Uh, so you might yeah, the great man theory uh of history was history was you know events in history were 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 developed by great men like you know like alexander and caesar and and uh and then more recently hitler you know and you know what and napoleon whatever the uh this was the great man theory of history and asimov supposedly did did the foundation to refute that because he uh, he could he could predict using Toynbee's cyclic theory and 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 also I think some data from Oswald Spengler. Uh, he could he could uh, with, with a huge statistical base like he would have with a galactic empire. Uh, he could predict historical events. Well, yeah, they so so they could, but then unfortunately uh, Asimov, you know, to uh, yeah, to deal with his own to deal with his own uh, uh, conflict that he was trying to picture, he created a mutant, charismatic mutant character they called the Mule, who who just uh, literally threw threw a monkey wrench in their in their statistical history theory, uh, and and uh, they finally dealt with that. But the second foundation was established, and what the second foundation did. The second foundation was kind of a clandestine, kind of a clandestine services group. It, uh, you know, it it would it it would if at extreme in extreme instances it would assassinate people or whatever. They, and and you you kind of think you know um, when you think about the the second foundation, you come to mind if if you remember that uh, that uh, second that second stage navigator in in uh, in Lynch's Doom film uh, in the tank. You know when he when he says when he says to uh, uh, to the emperor he says we want Paul Atreides killed 
and and the emperor said, well, oh, you, you, you must mean his father, the duke. No, we mean Paul. See, they... Those, those those navigators are seeing in the future, and and they they do it psychically in Herbert's story, but but in uh, in Asimov's story they would do it statistically. They would they would infer statistics. Well, out of this out of this uh, Asimov's rose this this new uh, pseudo scientific cult uh, sociological uh, history called uh, called cleodynamics. Now I've got a I've got a show in. Uh, those of you who like to go into our archives and listen to our old shows, uh, the show on Cleo Dynamics was uh, July fifteenth, twenty fifteen. And if you go in the archives, you'll you'll find out. I, I believe in Folio twenty five, uh, and and the show on Cleo Dynamics is very very much uh, related to what we are talking about tonight. And 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 uh, and so anyway, next week. We'll be back, and uh, the Hermetic Hour is uh, is a production of the Church of the Hermetic Sciences, and uh, is produced by very honored Sir Rosaria Zandria, and uh, and and uh, and we'll be back again next next uh, Thursday with another episode, and until that time, good magic.